Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. In 2012, George Lucas shocked the world when he sold Lucasfilm, including Star Wars, to the Disney Company. Even more, the news included the announcement of a sequel trilogy to the original films. In his book, Star Wars After Lucas, A Critical Guide to the Future of the Galaxy, Dan Golding describes the post-Lucas era, particularly seen through the eyes of The Force Awakens, Rogue One, The Last Jedi, and the animated Rebels series. In our conversation, we review many of the details from the book, including Dan's comparisons and reviews of the six previous films. Welcome, Dan Golding. Hi, Dan. Hi, Joel. How are you? Great. Uh, as we were talking about before the recording, uh, you're in Australia, so you and I are pretty much, I think we said 14 hours apart. So it's mm. my morning mm. and you're very late evening, so I appreciate yeah. you taking the time. And you had mentioned that you were an up, a late person, so that worked out yeah. perfectly for this. I'm definitely a night owl, yeah. <laughs> so uh, we're going to be talking about your book, Star Wars After Lucas, um, mm-hmm. which is soon a critical guide to the future of the galaxy. One of the things that I found interesting when I looked and said I really wanted to talk to you is that I first started doing these podcasts in September of 2014. And mm. at that point, the first person I ever talked to was Chris Taylor about his book, How Star Wars Conquered the Universe. Oh, perfect. And given that you use Chris, you know, you meant you do quote from his book a number of times in the uh, in your book, uh, I found yeah. it very interesting. I says, well, this is nice. I mean, not that I'm stopping this anytime soon, so it's not a bookend, but I yeah. It, it it tells me that uh, at least it's a subject that I'm well versed at. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I actually haven't been in direct contact with Chris, but I mean, I I loved his book, uh, and in some ways, I I sort of feel like, and you know, not to tread on his toes if he ever writes a follow up, but I feel like my book is in some ways a spiritual successor uh, to his, and I I thought that while I was writing it, so that's that's perfect. Well, given that I've read both of them, I think they're there. The difference is you do actually yours published to an academic pub press, and his was. Uh, more quote-unquote popular, but still, uh, mm-hmm. they both took a very almost academic view, but in a in a good way at Star Wars. Mm-hmm. I know there are academic treatises on Star Wars out there, but uh, sometimes you want something that's still also readable to the general public, and yours is definitely that. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I'm pleased to hear that. That, that was definitely the hope, yeah. <laughs> so, before we get to in detail about this book. Let's talk a little bit about your background. Obviously, you uh, not only are a, a professor, is that the right, I'm not sure of the term, in Australia, so you can, welcome to correct uh, yeah. me, but uh, so talk a little bit about your education and your educational work. 
Yeah. So in Australia, um, it's funny you should mention that. It, so a professor is um, like a level of seniority above me. I, I guess, I, I mean, my, my title is senior lecturer, but that would be professor in American terms. But in Australia, to call someone professor means they're sort of 20, 25 years into a career. So uh, I, I get a promotion every time I speak to uh, an American, which is nice. Uh, but my background is, yes, so uh, I'm an academic. Uh, and at the moment, yeah, I uh, teach a lot of media studies and film studies uh, and uh, music, uh, but from a media perspective, so more as an industry uh, rather than, you know, the uh, musicological um, sort of theory or anything like that. That's not quite what I do. Uh, but how I got to this point is sort of a, a really mixed bag. Uh, my PhD was on uh, video games uh, and video games as media. So a reasonably different area, but that was uh, as part of a kind of a film department so very much uh still you know uh learning the ropes uh in a in a in a similar kind of context uh but i've done a lot of journalism uh i've done a lot of work for the abc which is the um, national broadcaster here in australia that's the australian broadcasting corporation uh and not the abc in america uh and uh you know so anything from the written word i've done a lot of that uh, i've also done quite a lot of radio uh, at the moment i hope the film music show, uh, which goes uh, live nationally uh, every Saturday uh, around Australia. So that, I mean, is a, is a huge dream for me. I only started doing that this year and, it, uh, you know, I just love doing that. So really, uh, you know, I, I guess I, I come to Star Wars from a whole bunch of different perspectives, really, uh, and no one sort of discipline or uh, particular set of experiences informing my approach. I, I, I hope people reach out because the ABC um, is available to, to listen to on the internet for people outside. Well, it's a digi it's digital anyway, but I mean, anybody can listen to it over the web, or at least in the United States, I assume other countries as well. And your show mm. is available on the web, so hopefully people who have interest in film music will reach out and, and listen. I did. I found mm. uh, ABC Classic is the name of the station, the yeah, specific right. station, and it's classic as in classical, basically. But nicely, you mm. include film music, and that's great because I really believe, especially with, I mean, Star Wars, to a large extent, brought back film scores to me. Yeah. I, mean, I know other movies have used them before that, but Star Wars really made the big difference change as far as that's concerned. Yeah, absolutely. In 1977, I mean, John Williams had had big success with Jaws in mm. 75, but, you know, really Star Wars was the one that, that just transformed the uh, the industry back towards orchestral scores, which had sort of faded in the in the '60s towards the the trend towards um like tracked music and uh, pop music and stuff like that as well, which you know I think also works brilliantly. But I mean, I you know my heart uh, it lies with orchestral sort of the old golden age Hollywood sound. So you know, Star Wars really, as you say, revived that. Uh, to a huge degree. Uh, and uh, actually, yes, sorry, I should have mentioned as well, I do a film music podcast, uh, The Art of the Score, uh, with two other guys, uh, one who works at a symphony orchestra here in Melbourne and the other who travels the world, uh, frequently going to America, actually, um, to conduct uh, film scores, the live in concert 
performances that are so popular these days. Um, that's such a pleasure to do that podcast. Yeah, I know. We were talk- talking about film music. I Obviously, The Godfather in 72 and then the sequel, music mm. was very important to, that, to those films. But I also have memory of China Syndrome, which I think came out in 79. Maybe the year's wrong. Mm. It has a pop song at the beginning for the title mm-hmm. for the titles and then there's not another note of music in the rest of the film except maybe <laughs> for news you know when a, a news theme or something mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. one note of music in the rest of the film and and i yeah. think it's interesting it was not 79 it's even earlier than that but anyway it was before star wars so anyway yeah. uh but yeah music i i appreciate your knowledge of music because i think uh it really does help uh, Star Wars hits people. I know I remember buying the soundtracks and everything. Of course, I'm a little older than you. I actually was 21 when Star Wars, the first Star Wars came out. And oh, you wow. state in the book that you weren't even born yet. So <laughs> I, I wasn't, but I, I'm jealous, really. I would have loved to have been uh, able to go and see uh, the first film of, you know, just Star Wars. I won't even say A New Hope, just Star oh, Wars, no. which is what it was. It was a then. big shock when, I mean, obviously, when the first film came out, nobody knew what to expect. It hadn't gotten yeah. huge amounts of. Uh, I mean, the publicity was there, but by the time I, I saw it on a Saturday night in a in a multiplex, uh, which were st- which were around in '77 with a packed theater, and this was what I think it was September, so the movie had already been out for a while, and mm. not knowing what to expect, seen a couple of trailers, but nothing specific, so I went into it pretty much blind and walked yeah, out, yeah. and I said. I don't believe it. And then when they added the new hope, the Latin, you know, when they did a re-release with the new hope, everybody said, what does this mean? And yeah, pre-internet days. So obviously yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of discussion of what was going on. And it, it, when, when the new hope was added on it, it made the new time magazine did a mentioned it and a few other places. <laughs> so it was an mm. interesting time. Uh, in especially like I say, pre-internet and in the same way when empire came out and so on, but the prequels, mm. by the time the prequels came out, Internet wasn't really a big deal yet, but places like uh, AOL was around and, uh, Mm. you know, Prodigy and a few of these other services so people could talk about them. Yeah, definitely. I did a lot of that. (laughs) I was definitely around uh, by the time the prequels came out and was already very much a Star Wars fan by that point in time. I think I figured it out the other day. I would have been 12 when The Phantom Menace came out Uh, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I remember distinctly, and I've actually just been writing about this recently uh, because of the direct callback in the Rise of Skywalker trailer, but uh, seeing uh, those first words in the first teaser for the Phantom Menace of um, every generation has a legacy, uh, and that was just so powerful. Um, sorry, a legend, sorry, mm-hmm. not legacy. Uh, and we'll talk about legacy yeah. in a few minutes. Yeah, that that's exactly. A big word for I'm, you. I'm <laughs> getting ahead of myself, but yeah, you know, download, I mean, this is on a 56 K modem, uh, in, uh, at, well, reasonably rural Australia at that point. So I had, you know, a new five or 10 second snippet of that mm. trailer to watch every 10 minutes and <laughs> sort of spent the evening downloading the trailer and reflecting on it. And of course, the first trailer didn't even give a title of the film yet. It was just episode one and they did not. It was the same thing where the titles did not get uh, put out right away. And in fact, I was, mm. a little, you know, the, the new movie, you know, episode nine or yeah, mm. I, that, that I was a little shocked that they included the name of the film right away because sometimes they'll wait till mm. the full trailer before they put the title on. But anyway, mm. 
but yeah, watching the new trailer, there's no question you can see so much of the callback, and we talk about legacy in a minute, but I mean, there's so much legacy in that, and between Landel mm-hmm. Calrissian being in the trailer, and then <laughs> his laugh, and then having the Emperor's laugh at the end, it was like, okay, I think we're yeah. making the point here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, and you know, J.J. Abrams is, you know, his his sort of line in so many of the interviews well the few interviews that he's given about this film so far has really been emphasizing how he sees it as the final film in a nine film collection but also kind of the final film in a sequel trilogy so it's you know i think they're very conscious of having to balance two separate kind of endpoints so i wonder whether there will be perhaps more than we've seen in the previous films a little bit more acknowledgement uh that we're also wrapping up the prequels as well as the original films and the sequel trilogy which is a, you know a lot less controversial to to some right. viewers although i agree mm. with you when in some of what you talk about the prequel that i i think the story parts of the story of the prequels are quite good i i I really enjoyed Mm -hmm. much of the story the problem was where most people's (laughs) complaints were with the execution and i think if you there were a couple spots that if well mostly casting but you know we could have seen completely different movies but anyway that's the way we're yeah i remember when the prequels came out especially after the third one came out you could see the six movies being really more the story of anakin skywalker as opposed Mm. to you know from beginning to end where it will be interesting to see what we how we look at the full nine uh, from start to finish, and, and what kind of arc of a story we find we we pull out of it when when the final one comes out? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is this is something that I mean I think has slowly been becoming clear uh, to the makers of these films, uh, even George Lucas. I mean, I, I don't think it's uh, indisputable at all that he knew that Darth Vader was in fact Anakin Skywalker when he was making the first film. I think probably in all likelihood he thought they were two different characters and uh later sort of merged them together uh, in empire you know in a, in a brilliant move but not necessarily a pre-planned move so when you're thinking of that original film i mean anakin skywalker is really just a you know a, a myth a legend uh, a person who's mentioned really once or twice um i think once by name so it's uh yeah it, it is ebbed and flowed and evolved and become something you know, really on its own terms by by film number nine, and we'll see how we see where that ends up. Right, and the name Anakin doesn't appear in the in original trilogy until Return of the Jedi. Mm. It's the, the first time you hear the name Anakin. So uh, mm. I I think I'm pretty because I know it wasn't mentioned in either of the other films. So, but yeah. you're right. I yeah. think Lucas has done a great job of of creating a a legend of his own in which mm. he wants people to sort of think that he wrote all six movies. <laughs> at one time and decided to start with four and people have done there's a couple of books out there especially secret history of star wars is one i can think of where the person mm-hmm. the, the writer actually went back and reviewed all the scripts that he could get his hands on and stuff and, and as much information as he could and i think you're probably right i mean most of what lucas did was okay this is the movie it's done and then mm-hmm. things built up for, the legend built from there yeah absolutely yeah and sort of kept piling on and, and piling on and I mean, I, Lucas to me is a is a fascinating character. I mean, the book is called Star Wars After Lucas, right. but you know, I I think you can still there's so much to be gleaned from. I mean, his very limited 
public comments about the new films and the new era, um, but also, you know, just how he saw his films. And he's always acted throughout his career, really, from 1976, even before the first Star Wars film was released. He gave an interview where he more or less acts like this has been a massive inconvenience making this film and he cannot wait to get back to making what he calls his small independent experimental. (laughs) Yeah, I know. He mentions that has been his regular uh, mantra for his entire career and yet we haven't seen a single small independent film from him. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, the the only really thing, I mean, he was, he produced, I think, Red Tails um, right. after Revenge of the Sith. And that's really the only non-Star Wars thing he's made in a very long time. And even then, you know, of course, he didn't direct it. I mean, Lucas seemingly hates directing films. He likes being involved in the creative process, but actually being <laughs> on set directing actors uh, <laughs> seems to dislike that quite significantly. So and there was another thing a- that could have made the first three films better had he gone with that. Yeah. Maybe we would have had slight yeah. improvement there too but there therein lies the sort of contradiction and why i think he's so fascinating because you know it would have been the easiest thing in the world to to go okay you know i've got the huge pile of cash and i'm gonna find a, a creative person a, a director or a writer whoever to make this job easier for me and to kind of step back um he could have done that you know, right from from the moment Star Wars was an assured success. but uh, And, you know, of course, he got Irvin Kirshner to direct Empire Strikes Back and Rich Khan to direct um, Return of the Jedi, though it seems right. like perhaps Jedi was directed a little bit from afar uh, by Lucas to some yeah. degree. I think he lo- learned a little bit from the Kirshner uh, experiment, mm. which I still think was the greatest experiment. And had he gone with that going forward, yeah. things would have been much different. I still consider Empire to be the best movie of the and the reason I yes. think it's so great is because we had a real director who had total control, pretty mm. much or seemingly total control of the actual filming and clearly knew what he was doing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I agree <laughs> pretty much holistically. Yeah. And I mean, you know, but it, but it is fascinating. Like, why didn't he do that? for the prequels if he if he had such a bad time and he didn't enjoy directing so much uh then you know he could have given it to somebody else and so the fascination for me is well why not then (laughs) well i think it's it's the paradox of lucas he says he doesn't want to he finds certain things to be not uh to his liking but i also don't think he wants to give up control i think that was probably one of the most interesting things about the sale was and now Mm. we'll get more into what your book is about uh (laughs) The sale was that he gave it up lock, stock, and barrel. Nothing. Mm. He has no control over anything going forward, and he just sold it out right, and that was it. Yeah. Yeah, sort of seemingly his retirement plan. But, you know, I mean, you're talking about control. I mean, in the sale process, it seems like he, you know, very much tried to uh, have his fingerprints over every stage of the process, Uh, you know, wrote these script treatments or, you know, partially Mm -hmm. commissioned these script treatments um, for the sequel trilogy, uh, I think partly to sweeten the deal to sort of make it seem like, uh, you know, episode seven, eight, nine, more Star Wars was, was, 
you know, sort of um, anointed, uh, authorized uh, for Disney to take up. But at the same time, you know, uh, really, uh, you know, having having his story be continued, uh, which is which is very different to interviews that he was giving even in the even in the immediate years before the sale, where he sort of suggested that you know he'd even perhaps altered his will, so if he you know up and died. Uh, in 2010, uh, then nobody could make any more Star Wars ever <laughs> because mm. his will would preclude it. So, you know, and of course, you know, choosing Kathy Kennedy, for example, uh, to take over the day-to-day running of, of Lucasfilm. Uh, I mean, that was, I think, people today sometimes make the mistake of just assuming she's kind of a, a Disney appointment, but mm-hmm. she wasn't. No. Um, so, you know, very much I think he's still his his uh the george lucas signature is is still definitely part of that company yeah kathleen kennedy the first i remember of her is the indiana jones movies where she was yeah. a co-producer with her with frank marshall who happens to be her yeah. husband but he's a decent filmmaker all by himself yeah <laughs> so uh but yeah i mean kathleen kennedy's been around for a long time both with lucas and spielberg and others so she when i heard she was taking over there was no question in my mind that that was a good thing and and as you point out in the book disney's been pretty good about purchasing when they purchased that they've let those filmmakers pretty much do what you know, keep things like you mentioned Pixar and definitely with Marvel. Mm. I mean, there's no sign mm. of any real Disney-fying, Disney-fying going on in the Marvel films that I can see. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think it's it's interesting as well today, given, you know, the sort of uh, storied history that these new films now have and the central place that they have in popular culture. It's very easy to forget that in 2012, when the sale of Lucasfilm was announced to Disney, people went bananas. Uh, they, You know, it was like the, the world was ending. Uh, there was, you know... I think uh, I can't quite remember the the news story, but some I think it was possibly like the Onion or somebody jo- made a pretty off color joke. I think about how uh, it was the worst disaster of the week, and there'd been a, a tornado or something mm-hmm. like that, which had killed actual people, and they were sort of making the joke that hey, this is even worse than that. Uh, and you know, people uh, sort of you know thinking that Star Wars would be. <sighs> You know, uh, musical films with uh, Mickey Mouse ears and, you know, uh, just kind of totally forgetting that actually Disney has operated under a siloed model um, for a while now with with those two companies, particularly with with Marvel and uh, and Pixar. Yeah. Well, I remember the story and I don't remember. I was 2012. Who knows? I would know I was home wherever home was at the time. And I do remember the TV was on and I, th- I don't know if I saw it on, on the internet first or, you know, or saw an actual story on TV that was on, and I was mm. flabbergasted. And the first I had to think, my first thought was, I'm not sure what this means. And the more I thought about it, I said, well, wait a minute. And I think it was knowing Kathleen Kennedy's name, since she was mentioned mm. right at the top. I says, okay, well, wait a minute here. Let's see what happens. This mm. certainly sounds like you've got mm-hmm. somebody putting in here who's not just going to be a, um, you know, who has ties to Lucas. So it's not just mm. some total stranger that they brought in off the street, so to speak, to, to, to do yeah. this. So I'm th- I'm sure I said, let's wait and see. But, but the yeah. concept of more Star Wars was certainly uh, a positive as far as that was concerned. Yeah. I mean, I remember being really surprised um, and kind of, you know, curious to see what the future would hold. But uh, I certainly didn't think that The Force Awakens, well, being, being episode seven, would turn out 
anywhere near as well as it did. And I know that some people perhaps might think that to be a controversial opinion, but I still think The Force Awakens is is a, like a tremendous success in many ways. But uh, look, you know, we're back at that moment, I think I was perhaps optimistically skeptical, if that makes sense. And right. I was hoping that it would, uh, I was hoping that it would uh, turn out okay. But, you know, keeping, keeping my, uh, my hopes to myself. And of course, you know, there was that whole clearing out of the extended universe oh, as yeah. well, because. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that sort of the fan, certain fans. I mean, that was mm. the one that sort of got me was when people started complaining about the fact that the extended universe was gone. And I said, mm. well, what's wrong with that? They're books. I mean, mm. it's like Star Trek mm. did the same thing. I mean, they had had their extended universe in Star Trek and nobody ever made a film of any of the Star Trek books. So why would yeah. we assume that these would be <laughs> the same? I mean, you can keep your prequel stuff as much as you want because mm. nobody's mm. going to touch the prequels again. But yeah. you, you can't tie a filmmaker and say, well, you've got to have this character and this character. And so yeah, it, <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense in retrospect to sort of imagine that Disney's going to, I mean, you know, people were sort of like, maybe they would you know, seven, eight, nine are going to be direct adaptations of uh, Timothy Zahn's right. Thrawn trilogy, which, which were the, you know, the, the hugely successful um, books uh, right. that were really, I think, the, the first authorized, um, major authorized fiction works um, uh, in the 1990s, uh, I think it was. Right. There were there were ago. a number of books that came out at the time of the original Star Wars, including Splinter of the Mind's yeah. Eye, which came yeah, out yeah. between the films and completely destroyed the storyline in comparison, yeah. but uh, yeah. you're right. There were some books, but then they all once again took a break, and then suddenly Timothy yeah. Zahn's book started it all over again, which they definitely saw improvements of, of, of what we were getting as far as uh, fiction was concerned. Yeah. And I mean, you know, look, I love those books as, as much as, as many people. I mean, you know, even with the, uh, I think there's a lot of cloning going on uh, in those novels and some pretty uh, kooky storylines. But, you know, Thrawn is a great character and I'm really glad he's been brought back into the sort of uh, Star Wars canon now with uh, the animated series Rebels. The, and but, the books, too. I mean, they do yeah, new Thrawn yeah. books, so that's great, too. If people like yeah. them, now they actually get to see them on screen, so to speak, even if it's a TV screen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And an upcoming radio play as well I think um, well sort of you know whatever we call a radio play these days an audio <laughs> drama I think audio um, drama right this, yeah I, I uh, still have the recordings of the Star Wars what, the original Star Wars BBC audio dramas yeah. where they added all kinds of extra information and them mostly taken from the books but uh, yeah. it, it was still uh, it was something additional and I think back then those of us who were into the trilogies we wanted a trilogy yeah. we wanted to know okay give us more give us more unfortunately that yeah. meant we Marvel put in a space bunny in the comic book, so that's where things sort of <laughs> yeah went that's awry. Right. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that, which I suppose with the ownership agreements means uh, that character could easily be uh, revived today in canon if they wanted to, but, you know, I'm sure they won't. But I loved those audio dramas, the the, the ones with Mark Hamill right. uh, in, in, the, in the cast. I, I listened to them um, probably as much as I watched the films as a kid. Uh, yeah. So they, they are very, very much part of my part of my own Star Wars love. And they're uh, easily available. Audible still sells them, at least in the United States. So if anybody wants to hear the old radio dramas, they're easy easily still available to people to, mm. to listen to and they're definitely worth it definitely yeah so but, let's yeah. get into the book though because i know we've been sort of dancing around it mm -hmm. um but 
I think it's a good introduction. I mean, we've gone 26 minutes and we haven't really talked the book that much, but I think it all talks. It's all the book. Oh. There's always so much to talk about with souls. <laughs> when in your mind did you decide that this was a book you wanted to do? Uh, that is a really good question. I Look, I'd written a few responses uh, to the new not even the new films, actually. It was to do with the marketing campaign for The Force Awakens, uh, those first few trailers. Uh, I'd written a few pieces, and um, I basically just emailed a friend of mine because I, I mentioned that I uh, had a background in, in games journalism, uh, and so I knew an editor of um, Kotaku, the, the sort of major uh, games uh, website, and they, they have an Australian sub uh, company, I suppose, a sub-publication. Uh, and a friend of mine edited the local version of that. And I sort of messaged him one day and said, oh, look, do you, um, you know, if I wrote something about Star Wars, would you publish it? Uh, and he was really, really kind and encouraging uh, and, uh, you know, uh, published basically the the first thing that I wrote uh, and, and, and popped it up. Uh, and uh, it, it really did pretty well. I think um, it, it was really quite widely read as a as a reaction and an analysis of the that first trailer and not the first trailer actually because the first trailer was in 2014 uh which is just a very brief one it's that mm -hmm. one that ends with kylo ren with the the lightsaber the the double hilt shown off for the for the first time this was the um right the uh the luke uh dialogue over the top from return of the jedi or a similar dialogue to that and the end with the uh the chewy we're home uh, yeah that clip. i still remember watching the day that came out because i know they yeah they, they premiered it at a star wars celebration i think or, or a disney yeah they did thing. yeah and i remember watching it on the web right after it premiered or actually i think i was mm -hmm. watching it live because they were they were simulcasting it live and when they yeah. played that trailer and got to, and you started to see things you recognize and then got to the yep. end there. Yeah. No one who had any interest in Star Wars could not could not feel something when they saw that. Isn't it so powerful? I rewatched it even just I think I think literally yesterday I rewatched it and it still has such an emotional effect on me. And I remember I because you know we've already mentioned the time difference uh, and so it was about the panel um, for that event began at about 2 a.m. And as I said, I'm a night owl, uh, so I happened to be up writing anyway. I was just doing a bit of other sort of academic work. Uh, and I sort of thought, oh, you know, celebrations on. I think they're going to do some stuff about the new film. I wasn't that interested in that first trailer with the reveal of Kylo Ren. It looked interesting, but not really sure about the idea of new Star Wars. I'll just pop the panel on and see what's happening. And I remember sort of gradually being slowly more and more interested in, in that. And then finally they played that trailer at the end. And I, I just remember crying <laughs> uh, with uh, especially that line at the end. But there's also a moment about, I think it's about 20 seconds into the trailer, where um, they play some of John Williams's music from the original trilogy. And they cut to that shot of Poe just sort of whooping, I suppose you describe it, right. in the, in the X-Wing. And that to me was like, Oh, <laughs> right. the kind of optimistic, adventurous, and joyous Star Wars—the the kind of fun right. that was, you know, for the for the better or worse, uh, you know, all, all, when all is said and done about the prequels, I think fun was not always there in that same kind of way. Uh, I was kind of like, wow, okay, just seeing somebody kind of cry out with joy while they're flying an X-wing, I think I might be 
having a response here. <laughs> but yes, then I then I went on to write about how, gosh, you know, that first shot of that trailer is uh, Ray riding across the the the, the landscape, the um the horizon in her speeder uh, past the fallen uh, star destroyer and the next wing in the foreground uh, and sort of how as a first shot in that trailer I mean that just I think it shows just how expertly not just the film was pitched but the marketing campaign was pitched in that it allowed the audience to mark the passing of time to sort of be welcomed back into the universe but also to acknowledge that you know things have changed and you might want to you might want to learn how things have changed since you last were here uh you know before the credits of uh return of the jedi uh and you know that that shot as well as i argue in the book uh and argued at the time actually kind of mimics the very first shot of the very first star wars film where we see a star destroyer um flying overhead following the logo and the credits that we've just seen you know um you know hotly pursuing the the rebel um, blockade runner princess leia's blockade runner and how you know so many people over the years have written about how that shot kind of spoke to something larger in the universe to them and kind of you know gave them a sense of 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 some incredibly um, poignant or pre- like almost pregnant possibility of this world that they had to learn more and that they kind of you know felt themselves being pulled in after the Star Destroyer into this universe where the kind of boundaries of the, the theatre and the, the image of the film um, blurred and uh, you know I think that's such a, a great way of thinking about those original films and what they did for a lot of people at the time and so to see that shot because the camera instead of staying static as it is in that original shot and the ships are moving well the ships are are downed on Jakku and the camera is moving but it still is similar in that we see a kind of an x-wing so not quite a blockade runner but it's a rebel ship uh and then followed by the downed star destroyer and so it's sort of like we're seeing the same thing we're being welcomed in in the same way but the rules have changed they've literally been put into a new direction and i just you know i just think that was so so powerful actually and and quite smart too Well, this is probably where Disney is at its finest, and that is marketing. So, yeah, (laughs) there's no question. But I mean, J.J. Abrams is too. I mean, like I say, we've Mm -hmm. done we've seen so much from him and the fact and at the time when he was announced that he was going to take the reins that everybody had he had done a a reboot of Star Star Trek. And yeah. In a way, he rebooted Star Wars, even though it was more of a continuation as where with his reboot of Star Trek, he had to pretty much start all over, which he did by bringing back Spock from the past, but then eventually rebooting everything where in Star Wars, he still had to continue on with with what we had. I mean, he wasn't going to start it all over or anything like that. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, look, you know, Star Trek was a was you know, and I you know, I really like Star Trek as well, and I like his Star Trek. Well, I certainly really like the first one, right. uh, and uh, you know, I, I people people. I mean, he he was kind of training in a way for Star Wars, uh, but you know, I think you know, especially at the time, people made jokes about uh, you know there'd be lens flares everywhere, and uh, because that was kind of his directorial trademark especially with the star trek films there are admittedly a lot of lens flares uh, especially you know in any shot on the bridge in those films but you know if you look at the other films that he's done i mean he's following 
I think, similar preoccupations. Even Mission Impossible 3 has that extended sequence uh, towards the end where Ethan Hunt trains his wife uh, to sort of revive him in a way but you know he's transferring skills in a desperate kind of situation he's training her to survive on her own which is what we see a lot of in these kind of uh, franchise revival films these legacy films and you know as well with uh, super 8 uh, which i think is a really underrated uh, film that that abrams made i mean it's not reviving any specific franchise uh, at all but it is very clearly uh, you know and was um you know talked about by Abrams um, as a extended homage to basically the films of Amblin Entertainment, uh, but things like E.T. and The Goonies. And so, you know, he spent a career uh, as a director and, of course, you know, he, as a writer and a producer, his career dates back to the 90s. But, you know, as a director, as a film director, in those sort of five years in the lead up to The Force Awakens, I mean, he's he's doing similar things. He's working within nostalgia, within memory, but also films that are about training, about ensuring people survive after you're gone. And I I, I did rewatch in, in preparation for this, and as I was reading the book, I did rewatch Force Awakens two days ago and then The Last Jedi mm. yesterday, mostly mm. because... It's been a while since I'd seen either of them. I wanted to get a sense. And I will tell you this, as somebody who obviously has been around with Star Wars my entire adult life, one of the things I noticed immediately with rewatching Force Awakens, there's two things. Number one, right at the very beginning, you knew we were on real sets. Now, granted, obviously, yeah. there were a lot of ships and stuff, so there were ways that we had to, um, uh, we still had a lot of CGI and, and visual effects, but the bottom line is you knew you were in a real world. Those scenes yeah. of the, uh, you know, of Jakku uh, early on where you're clear they're in the desert they're not on some green screen you know with a green screen mm. behind them so you saw a definite difference to the prequel and then the, the prequels and then the other thing was the minute Han Solo appears in the film the humor level goes up crazily. I mean, it's just yeah. unbelievable how much more... The minute he's there, I'm not that there isn't a little bit before then, but once he's there, the whole thing lightens. And yeah. I think that was one of the other great things with The Force Awakens. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, J.J. Abrams as well spoke about getting a performance out of Harrison Ford that avoided his uh, sort of the, the growly, uh, gravelly Harrison Ford that had perhaps been a, been a factor of his films for the previous decade where he, you know, I mean... Really quite literally his voice is just pitched lower in right. a lot of his other films uh, as he got older and so you know getting him to kind of raise his voice a little bit uh, and even you know just sort of break out of his shell and be that it'd be a little bit closer to that kind of you know that that fun you know that sort of of course everybody goes to the brilliant uh, moment in the first film where he shoots the 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 console saying you know boring conversation anyway uh, and that that entire sort of you know seat of your pants kind of making it up as you're going along uh, uh, which in some ways is similar to, to Indiana Jones um, uh, at least that that first oh, yeah. film uh, I mean that's that's also I think it, it that's the the real mood of the force awakens which is I think you know beyond any uh, 
you know, plot similarity or the way that people were like, oh, you know, sort of it's just a remake of A New Hope. I mean, the thing to me that is actually most similar to the original trilogy and actually most similar to A New Hope is the way that The Force Awakens, it, it just feels breathless. It feels lightning fast. It's just there's constantly something happening. And when something, you know, when our heroes escape one scene, they sort of get to relax for about five seconds before the next thing, the next crisis comes along and they've got to sort of make it up as they go along and find their way out of it but you know there's this kind of um it's like a it's like a roller coaster in that sense uh and you know although today with today's eyes going back and watching a new hope i mean especially some sequences on tatooine uh by today's standards are quite low i think back then i mean it felt lightning fast i think uh well it was it was great filmmaking you had the craziness going on up at the ship you needed a pause and yeah that's the part where lucas there's no question that his pacing uh, to a largest i mean he had his pauses in there so you had your moments of breathing at least so that you weren't non-stop which unfortunately these days it seems like some movies they don't believe in pausing you know and mm, and, mm, and mm. lucas that's one thing i will give for lucas he understands the importance of pauses yeah absolutely but uh as well i mean uh, you know i mean he himself has uh you know self-deprecatingly joked that his uh directorial style is to basically only say okay do it again but this time faster and more intense uh and you know i think but you know it's 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 not a bad contribution to cinema i think lucas has many contributions to to cinema and even directorial style uh beyond what we might think of like perhaps special effects or world building or stuff like that uh but you know as a as a kind of mood i think the the pace of a new hope is is great and i think the force awakens does a really terrific job of evoking that sense of of um positive breathlessness you mentioned harrison ford and i still remember my favorite harrison ford scene in any movie he's ever made and unfortunately in the original version it was cut and that's an american graffiti where he sits in the in his car and we've been given this print this idea of who he is and who he was in that film and he's sitting there singing some enchanted evening and (laughs) that scene originally got cut when the firm film first came out and lucas was able to put it back in and there's you you just sit there and you start laughing because you see that's you want to think that's really Harrison Ford there. I mean, that's just, it's yeah. he, he, a real character there. So uh, I also yeah. laughed that the day's going to come where uh, Harrison Ford's going to be in a movie and he's going to say, get off of my lawn. Yeah. There's something <laughs> yeah. like that has got to be coming at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, d- I mean, look, I would not be opposed to a... Uh sequel to uh air force one i think that's a underrated harrison ford film from the 90s it's not not super smart but lots of fun so anyway let's let's, like i say we keep (laughs) talking about the books and going off into tangents but that's the way star Mm. as you pointed out that's the way star wars is so your book Mm. covers you you obviously had to decide okay this is the areas i wanted to cover so in addition Mm. to the you know the actual some background information about the uh the treat the trilogy, the original trilogy, and the prequels, and then the Disney sale, you basically con- concentrate on The Force Awakens, Rogue One, Last Jedi, and then the Rebels uh, animated series. Uh, those mm. are your focus. Obviously, you know, before the book came out, Solo came out, but you had to put a stop mm. someplace, and frankly, yeah. you know, that was probably a good way to do it. Um, mm. But those were the things you focused on. But one of the things I wanted to bring up because it is so important both to your book and, and, and other things you've made is the concept of legacy. 
legacy films. Mm. And if you could talk a little bit what you mean by legacy films, because I know it's very important, not only for this film, for these films, but for other films as well. Yeah, yeah. So this this concept of the legacy film, uh, I mean, I'm not the only person in the world to have have thought of this idea uh it previously um uh was was coined by a, a journalist called matt singer uh, wrote wrote about this idea of the um the legacy sequel i think i'm going to pronounce it as i i sort of am not quite sure it's all one word uh, so it's a neologism oh, yeah. and a portmanteau <laughs> um but legacy sequel or legacy quell i don't know quite how i mean i think it's perhaps up to the up to the speaker to to choose how to say it but uh so i just called it a legacy film because it's easier um but this idea of these films which i think gosh you know like a a a lot of people um will will recognize these types of films if even if they haven't quite given them a name but films like the force awakens films like indiana jones and the crystal skull or independence day resurgence or creed or to some extent uh blade runner 2049 or you know the abrams star trek films uh or tron legacy uh where essentially they're about reviving a dormant franchise that was popular and transferring it to a new generation uh of stars or characters and also really to a new generation of audience members as well uh which is interesting because especially in the case of star wars this kind of intergenerational transference is something that has always happened. And Carrie Fisher, uh, in her fantastic memoirs, um, The Princess Diarist, um, r- writes pretty perceptively about how fans would come up to her at conventions or events and sort of say, like, you know, hey, I've brought my six-year-old daughter and I've just started showing her Star Wars or, you know, the other end of the spectrum where maybe, you know, a 25-year-old might come up to her and say, oh, my dad, you know, used to, you know, sit down with me and watching Star Wars was the thing that we did, right? So it's something that people have always done, but now the films do that as well uh, in this kind of, you know, this moment where you might be able to take, I don't know, dad or whatever <laughs> to uh, to go and see the new Star Wars film, but it's because you're interested in it as well and there's something for both generations. So it kind of works on multiple levels, obviously the in-film narrative level, uh, but also the the kind of, you know, the, the, the industrial but also cultural level, uh, I think. And so, you know, there are so many, I mean, I mentioned quite a few of these films and they broadly speaking have a few familiar beats um i think to to a lot of them uh in that you know they'll all usually have legacy characters which is actually uh, that not my term that's the term that kathleen kennedy uses for uh the the old uh the original trilogy characters in in these sequel films she calls them legacy characters uh but then there's you know the sequel characters your your ray your finn your poe etc uh and the film is kind of, you know, narratively then about well, how do we reach the point by the end of the film where we've kind of transferred the future of the franchise to these younger characters, but kind of authorized that transfer. Uh, and often that's by having these older characters turn up a bit, a bit cynical, perhaps a bit jaded. They've already, they've already done 
you know, the hero thing, uh, and they've moved on, you know, like uh, Rocky in Creed, he just wants to run his restaurant. Uh, you know, Harrison Ford says, you know, I used to be Han Solo uh, in The Force Awakens, you know, that that sort of thing. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a neat little narrative trope to have these newer characters be forced to kind of inspire a revival of uh, belief almost. Or, or purpose in these legacy characters and for them to then kind of acknowledge that these newer characters have power uh, and to kind of, you know, hand over the keys to the franchise uh, to them by the end of the film. And sometimes that happens via their, their death. I mean, we see that happen a lot in these films. Uh, but also sometimes it just happens through sort of, you know, saying, yeah, okay, I respect you. You know, I support you. I, I you know, you are worthy. It's interesting you mentioned death. And obviously with the Star Wars movies and going right in through Last Jedi now, um, we're in a position where two characters have been quote unquote killed off although we know that mm. Mark Hamill's in the new one, so he's around in some way, mm. shape, or form. And mm. But unfortunately, Carrie Fisher died uh, after the after um, Last Jedi was made, but before they started doing any filming for the new film. So yeah. they're going to have to deal with her death in some way, shape, or form, so it will be interesting yeah. to see how they do that. Uh, but uh, as you point out with these uh, legacy films, for example, we couldn't even have a legacy film anymore for Star Trek because so many of mm. the original actors, we had it already, obviously, but the only one they really could. I mean, I know William Shatner's still around and he's still complaining mm. that he never got into any of the, <laughs> of the, of the newer ones. But uh, yeah. Well, I mean, he had his kind of legacy moment in, in one of the earliest films to follow this model, which right. is Generations. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, yeah, we could we could bring him up. But, you know, at the same way, like you know, Jurassic World, um, the, the first Jurassic World film doesn't. I mean, it's got B.D. Wong, um, but, you know, I think it's stretching credibility to say that he's a major character from the original film. Uh, Most people so probably what, don't even remember he was in the original film. It, 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 exactly, yes. <laughs> so, I mean, I, you know, I think that film, I mean, it could have very easily had, I mean, we have Jeff Goldblum in, you know, very briefly in, in the sequel. Um, we could have had Sam Neill, um, you know, or really, you know, anybody return. Uh, but what they seem to decide to do instead was the, the park, actually, in Jurassic World is that they revisit the original park or they find the original park uh, and have them sort of need to use the, the older technology at one point in the film to escape. And so, you know, there's there's different ways to kind of do this. Um, so yeah, look, it definitely works a lot better, I think. And it's, there's certainly something of an emotional punch about seeing one of these older actors reprising an earlier role, especially a role that made them famous. Um, uh, it's not the only way to do it, but it is, uh, yeah. It's yeah. Interesting. Of course, we had to do a reprise in uh, Rogue One in a different way. Obviously, mm. um, Carrie Fisher was still alive at the time of Rogue One, but they couldn't yeah. use her original look. And and obviously, Peter Cushing was long gone by this point. Uh, mm. And that's using the uh, 
the CGI to recreate, and we've seen it happen again in in other films. I noticed in Captain Marvel, the new Marvel film, mm. Uh, mm. they did the same thing with Samuel Jackson and Clark Gregg to make them look younger. Yeah. And I'm still not sold on it. I frankly, to me, <sighs> if you're used to these characters and you're used to these actors, to see them look younger. To me, at least, it didn't complete. It you were spending more time thinking about. Oh, he looks younger. Mm. So I don't know. Mm. I it's it's interesting that they've made these attempts to to, to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, Sean Young in Blade Runner twenty forty nine right. is another example of that, uh, which is interesting to have. You know, the you know very gray haired Harrison Ford next to a perfectly recreated Sean Young in that film. I mean, it it is. It is interesting, and I, I, I actually, um, this is one of my current academic projects. Is I'm, uh, I've presented a work in progress paper, and I'm, I'm writing on this idea of these digital faces uh, in, in particularly in franchise cinema, because it does seem to be that this is where these digital faces live. Is, is in these franchise films, which you know tells you something about how they operate in terms of uh, memory and in terms of nostalgia uh, and in terms of the way that I think really a lot of these films, uh, especially as they reach uh, an emotional climax or perhaps, you know, one or two films into their franchises. I mean, and of course, in the case of uh, the Marvel films, I mean, yes, there's definitely Captain Marvel, but the, the earlier, some of the earlier films, um, I think Ant-Man uses uh, similar um, technology too in some flashback scenes. Well, they all, um, yeah, you're right. There's enough flashback scenes. Well, even in the new film, there's flashback yeah. scenes that they had to do that, especially with Michael Douglas and a couple other characters. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And so what I'm kind of arguing is that um, to some extent, and, and I do mention this idea in the book as well, uh, the these franchise films are sort of you know using this technology and using this kind of narrative trope as almost the equivalent of of the clip show so you know you'd remember um you know before we could binge tv series or before we could you know jump on netflix and pick out our favorite episode of of whatever it happened to be that we wanted to see you know, very, very, very easily to rewatch a favorite episode of something would be very difficult. Uh, and, you know, you'd have to catch it on a rerun or perhaps you'd have a tape copy, but that's, you know, was still much less likely, especially with really long series. And older series before, I mean, Star Wars didn't even come out on video for years because yeah. there was no such thing at the time. Yeah, There absolutely. was not public video. I mean, people weren't, and Star actually, Lucas held on to it very tightly. It was a long time before it even came out. Yeah, which, I mean, surprisingly in a way is definitely, uh, you know, similar to the Disney uh, Disney Vault strategy over the years. But that that's a whole other story. But uh, yeah, so, you know, uh, TV series in particular would do a clip show where uh, a, a clip episode where they'd have sort of, you know, ah, uh, you know, uh, Chandler, don't you remember when right. Monica said blah, 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 and then, mm. you know, the screen goes wavy and we suddenly see, you know, a sort of three-minute excerpt of a, of a good scene from a previous episode of Friends. Uh, and that, that was the kind of logic of revisiting the best moments. And so, you know, I think in a way, you know, as as a lot of these stories start to wrap up, and you mentioned Marvel before, and I, you know, I don't want to sort of uh, collaterally spoil that film, but uh, you know, definitely you can see the logic working of in a in a in a different way because I think you know 
directly doing the clip show, people would be irate these days because you know it would be sort of some some kind of uh, unimaginative reuse of uh, reuse of an older film. But you can see that similar logic where they're sort of like, remember when? Remember this moment? This and moment yet, was really good. And yet, <laughs> Friends is probably one of the most binge shows on Netflix because. Uh, in fact, yeah. there was a discussion. It was they were going to take it off, and everybody went crazy. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah. it is interesting that a show that had to use clip show clips in order yeah. to uh, make it uh, possible to remember it's now mm. people it's, it's impossible to forget. Yeah, well, I mean, I am uh, constantly amazed. So, with my students um, for the last. Uh, four years I've been teaching uh, every semester, so that's twice a year, so eight eight times uh, I've taught uh, a, a big introduction to media studies subject at, at my uni, uh, and so I'm teaching mostly 18-year-olds uh, starting university for the first time, and I, I, I surveyed them. I send them out a, a Google form with about 70 TV shows from all eras in there. So, you know, including every possible popular show right at the moment, um, Australia specific stuff as well. But, you know, Game of Thrones, these big things that you would expect everybody to, to be watching. And I tell you what, every single semester, the most popular show is Friends, <laughs> which just perplexes me. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I do remember us. when it came out and, and it, of course it was out at the same time that Seinfeld was coming close to wrapping up. I think I don't remember the exact yeah. dates now, but Star Wars, obviously Seinfeld had become a very much of a, of a water cooler show. And then friends became another water cooler show. And I think that's probably yeah. uh, not a surprise that it is still quite popular. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly uh, the 90s, very much back in a fashion sense. So I often think of Friends as their kind of lookbook for uh, clothing choices. So maybe that plays into <laughs> Well, we all have our nostalgia, as you pointed out. Uh, we haven't had a chance to talk about Rebels, which is unfortunate. I mean, that's the animated series. And of course, we know mm. that uh, Lucasfilm is still continuing the animated series. They you know, they've mm. already had one season of Resistance, so we know they're going to be continuing with that. Uh, but I really wanted to bring up Last Jedi. I know we're running, we're running, mm. you know, it's been, we've been on for almost an hour, but I don't want to not mention Last Jedi because I think <laughs> it's worth discussing it. And I really, I know I did not see it when it first came out for a variety of reasons, but I did everything I could not to get any spoilers. I tried my best, but I knew there were controversies about it. And I said, okay, let's wait and see. And I finally saw it. And there are issues I have with the film, including a couple of plot points that weren't even necessary. I mean, there was absolutely no reason for them to go to the main ship to turn off the beacon because they didn't need the beacon. Uh, but mm -hmm. I would love to see, but you had some, what I thought, positive aspects of it. So I'm going to see, where are you on The Last Jedi and, and, and its, its importance to the, to the overall, to the nine films? Well, I think it's really important um, film for Disney uh, and for this current era of Star Wars, not 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 even the sequel trilogy, but for the current era. In that, and, and you know, I think one of the fairly obvious and reasonable criticisms of my book is, you know, why didn't you wait until the last, uh, you know, the the Rise of Skywalker episode nine, and then it could be about this, you know, new trilogy from start to finish. 
but for me, the book is a snapshot of the revival of Star Wars, which is the first saga film, the first anthology film or Star Wars story film in Rogue One, and the first animated series, which is Rebels. And since then, we've seen, you know, as you point out, uh, Resistance, we've seen Solo, and we've seen The Last Jedi. So The Last Jedi is this kind of, I think, a really clear articulation point uh, for this era of Star Wars in that you know, it's very clearly signaling that now we're moving from um, revival to perhaps rearticulation. I think I don't know if um, if uh, if uh, the 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 right word is revision. I think that's maybe a little bit too strong. I think initially when I saw the Last Jedi, I thought it was revision it was you know really kind of meddling or you no know, you know getting into the guts of the star wars universe and changing things uh but now i think it's it's maybe it's 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 just altering things a little bit and it's charting a new direction uh so i think you know uh it, it's really it holds a key place uh for for disney and for the sequel trilogy in that sense I think in terms of, oh, uh, sorry, would you? No, that's uh, good. No, Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was, yeah. I mean, I think just in terms of how I feel about the film myself, I, I still, I think there are some really beautiful scenes in The Last Jedi. I think, you know, Yoda, I mean, that's one of the best uses of that character post even empire strikes back but you know look he's pretty good in in return of the jedi as well uh and you know they just really really nailed his return uh, and added to the to the long list of quotable yoda quotes which is no mean feat i think uh in they are what we grow oh, sorry we are what they grow beyond uh talking about being a master and reflecting on that and that's just such a beautiful articulation of yes there is a little bit more wisdom that yoda can impart on luke uh and also the world perhaps <laughs> uh but also you know i think uh I think visually it's an incredible film and I think that it does some really interesting and and provocative and difficult but in a good way things for some of the character archetypes in that it it perhaps does uh, and this is probably one of the reasons why people had such a strong response to it is that it, it does deconstruct and to some extent criticize that sort of reach for the gun first and sort of get by by the seat of our pants and make it up as we go along and it'll all be okay sort of mentality. It sort of says maybe that's not sufficient for leading people who are relying on you into into the future, which is – that's challenging. That's sort of directly challenging the, the character type of, of Han Solo, really. Uh, and so I can understand the strong response to it, but I think that's – gosh, that's really, that's provocative and that's brave, I think, as well. So, you know, but at the same time, I, I look, I do think that it doesn't nail its comedic moments. I think it kind of waits for the joke to land, uh, which is not like Star Wars. It's kind of like in the original films and in The Force Awakens, the jokes are very much, you sort of realize they're jokes when they've already passed you by and that's what makes them funny because they've sort of, you know, the characters have already moved on and you're like, wait, that was really funny. Uh, whereas in The Last Jedi, it's sort of like, you know, there's a bit of a nudge and a wink and like, did, did you get that? Uh, which I, I, I didn't like so much. But yeah, look, it's, uh, 
it is one that I think I will go back and certainly get a lot from particular key scenes. Uh, and I do think that they that the end for Luke is actually really fitting, uh, if, as you pointed out, we can even call it an end. Uh, but, you know, I think, I think a lot of people misunderstood what Luke was about in that they thought he was this big, bad, Sith-defeating, you know, hyper-powered Jedi when he wins in The Return of the Jedi by throwing away his lightsaber, by choosing not to fight, by saying that, you know, he believes in his principles and his understanding of other people and the power of other people uh, and the decisions that other people will make in this case being, you know, his father. That's his way to chart the future. And so, you know, his end for me in The Last Jedi of choosing to make himself an icon and a symbol for the resistance by not actually fighting again I mean, I think that's perfect. And they clearly brought that up in the final scenes just before the credits where we see the the children on the, you know, the, the mm. racing children who are playing with a Luke Skywalker doll. So yeah. in that sense, <laughs> things have not, I mean, we're talking legacy again because people yeah. who grew up during that period, the kids, I mean, Luke Skywalker mm. as, as, a, as a toy is still an incredibly <laughs> popular toy. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, I mean, you know, and, and, and there is that moment definitely where I think the film is once again, as, as has been the power of the Disney era where the film is speaking within the film and the context of the narrative, but it's also speaking to the audience. It's also saying, you know, as uh, Han Solo says, you know, it's true, all of it, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's as true for you as it is in this narrative universe, which is, I think, a really powerful way of putting it. And I think in the end, it, it goes back to Lucas's and, and Lucas and his ways of talking about, you know, the concept of, of storytelling and the fact that myths are, you know, he, he's a very, he's a big fan of Joseph, Joseph Campbell, obviously, and, mm. and myths as, a, you know, we all have our myths. And to a large extent, I think he's saying, or what the films prove is that some of our myths are going to, in the 21st century, are going to come from popular media. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I you know, I, he's you know, really that's one of his great contributions I think to popular culture is that kind of understanding that well, you know, and coming from his own childhood as well, he often talks about going to to see the, you know, the old film serials and getting so much from uh from these old movies and this this old kind of you know almost simplistic myth making but you know nonetheless really resonates because of that simplicity and i think you know that's he's contributed so much with star wars yeah and yet in many ways television these days has become in many ways at least in the united states i don't know how much of mm. the united states material you see in australia on a regular basis but oh, most tv bit, yeah. series anymore have become serials I mean, from yep. beginning to end, there are very few television shows that you can truthfully say you can watch an episode right in the middle and not mm. un and, and be able to understand everything. Uh, yeah. Even comedies, you know, half-hour comedies are becoming more and more dependent on past knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and in a way that they never were before. And that sort of, you know, in part goes back to technology in that there's just no way that you could hope that your audience would possess so much information if you were just broadcasting on a week-by-week -week basis. You'd have to build in fail-safes and make sure that 
you know, your audience was keeping up. Whereas now you know that even if they don't catch it at the broadcast date, they're going to go back and watch it on catch up or watch it on streaming if they're not even doing that in the first place, as most people are really. So, you know, I must admit, I watch Game of Thrones on HBO now rather than watching it live on HBO (laughs) because it starts a couple minutes earlier, but also because, you know, I can control it a little bit that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, gosh, (laughs) Game of Thrones in Australia is a whole nother kettle of fish because we uh, we notoriously have really terrible uh, internet speeds. I think it's oh. the 62nd in the world in Australia. So you streaming... mean the United States isn't bad at something technology uh, related? Yeah. <laughs> no. We yeah we we are not good in terms of uh, that kind of thing. Sadly, uh, there have been a few uh, initiatives to fix that which have been thwarted. But that's a whole other topic. But uh, yes, it's not not amazing. But look, I, I will say on the topic of TV that I think it's very, very interesting that now Lucasfilm has kind of said, okay, you know, after the rise of Skywalker, after episode nine, we're going to cool it a little bit with the films. and We're going to concentrate on The Mandalorian, uh, the, the TV show that uh, I think is, is pretty much ready to be released uh, when Disney Plus right. uh the streaming service. They're holding everything for Disney Plus at this point. Exactly, yes. And then the the Cash In Andor series, the spin-off series from Rogue One is, I think, in production right now and will be released next year. So it seems like they're pivoting to TV, which, look, it might seem like a very contemporary strategy, but at the same time, look, you know, let's go back to George Lucas in that at the after Revenge of the Sith, what was in his mind, I think at the time, and in most people's minds, the final Star Wars film, uh, he was, you know, his plan was, okay, now we do TV. And not just the animated series, but, right. you know, he wrote, uh, he, he had a uh, 100 episode scripts uh, written out, ready for uh, a TV series, that a live action TV series that I think parts of that eventually ended up being Rogue One. But, you know, this is this is actually the George Lucas model. When you're done with the films, you turn to the to TV and kind of revive that. And so I think, you know, it's very interesting that Lucasfilm is is doing that at this point. And, I'm, you know, we'll get back to the films, I'm sure, only a couple of years down the track. But, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a, you know, a, George Lucas is mocked for saying, you know, that line in the Phantom Menace making of documentary where he says it's like poetry, it all rhymes. But, you know, it does. <laughs> well, in Clone Wars, he already had started it, even though it was animated. Clone Wars was a was number one. It's considered part, even now part, considered part of canon, but it was purposely put in there for TV, uh, mm. sort of to bridge the two movies. So it's he actually yeah. started it even before. Now we see contemporary Lucasfilm continuing with it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, those animated series have become a major prong. Uh, I mean, I know that we're probably out of time. and we, Yeah, we're, we won't, I know. <laughs> we, we can continue to talk. I just had one other question. I I need to know this because it's mm. something that I'm interested in. Would you ever, mm-hmm. what, what would you, th- what were you, uh, first off, I think it's highly unlikely we'll ever see them, but wouldn't you want to read Lucas's treatments <laughs> for seven through nine? Yes, I would really, really like to read them, I, I, especially because... You know, he was so vocally critical of The Force Awakens uh, when it first appeared. You know, he did that Charlie Rose interview where he said, ah, Disney didn't want to do my script. They wanted to do a retro movie is how he put it. So, I, you know, I mean, that's that's how I start the book is sort of, well, you know, people say that The Force Awakens is just an unimaginative remake of A New Hope, but Lucas can see how things have changed 
So, you know, how, it, maybe, maybe we should, you know, if he can see, then maybe we should take a look, take a harder look at, at what, you know, what's different from how George Lucas would have done things. And so I think that would be such a fascinating comparison to make. Yeah. And by the way, the, the, the prequels have quite a bit to, to fall back on. We have once again, three, three main characters in the first film or four actually now, because, you know, with the, with Jake. Lloyd. But I mean, it still comes down to the same thing. And every, just about every ep, uh, first episode, not just about, in every first episode of, a, of the trilogy, some major character who's important to everyone dies. So yeah. let's, let's not, let's not, it, let's go back to Lucas's original point, which I think he said in a, I read, I heard this recently. He said, there's only 32 plots, or he doesn't say that. He's yeah. quoting someone else. So let's not yeah. uh, pretend like what he was going to do for seven through nine was going to be that different. No, exactly. And, you know, uh, like I kind of wonder, because especially the first Star Wars film was such an amalgamation of his own media diet uh, from, you know, those serials that I mentioned before to Westerns and Akira Kurosawa films. Uh, you know, maybe he's just finally getting a taste of his own medicine where he knows what it feels like to uh, see, you know, a film so heavily inspired by his own work rather than uh, the other way around. And frankly, since his last film's likely going to, uh, that he had any control over was going to end up being Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, I don't think he's got, you know, let, let, let's, <laughs> let's, let's back off a little bit from that, George, you, you know. Yeah. So anyway, uh, we've gone longer than I usually do, and I really appreciate your time, but we could probably talk for a lot longer. But I think at this point, people would be saying, okay, fine. I get your point. Read the book. Yeah. So, so the book, <laughs> yep. Star Wars After Lucas, A Critical Guide to the Future of the Galaxy by Dan Golding. First off, the fact that it's University of Minnesota Press, I think, is great. The idea that a university press feels like this is an important book to publish is is a great thing to me. I mean, it just shows the yep. ability of the press, you know, that we as writers now have the ability to be considered on an academic level for some popular culture. It, it's just such a great thing. Uh, absolutely. And look, I, I will 100% say the University of Minnesota Press have been just so fantastic from start to finish. Uh, and, you know, look, some academic books never see, you know, the light of day in, in a, in a, in a non-academic context. And sometimes that's even as simple as they cost a lot of money. Sometimes these books, they can be more than a hundred dollars. Um, but you know, they, they always saw this book as something that, that, that people who were not tenured would have an interest in. So <laughs> Yeah, and they priced it very well. I mean, there's no question like in the United States the Kindle version's less than fifteen dollars. So I mean and even the hardcover's not that expensive. So this is this is an unusual book in some ways for academic presses. So I'm glad number one that you wrote it, but also hopefully it will continue to get uh lots of good press and, and people buying it so that um we can continue with these kind of projects that uh, are going to reach more than the quote unquote academics. Yeah, I really hope so too. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for your time. Like I said before, we went for an hour and f 15 minutes and I don't think I'm going to edit hardly anything. So it's, it was a long discussion, but I think it was important to get your sense of the whole thing and not just uh, the more current period. And, and, I, and as we approach uh, the end of the year and Rise of Skywalker, hopefully we will continue to enjoy what Lucasfilm is doing with Star Wars and uh, whatever it ends up being that Star Wars will be around in some way, shape or form 
as long as yeah. Disney, as long as Disney is, I think. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for having me and for, gosh, for, you know, having read the book and taken an interest in it and being so, you know, prepared and interested for this interview. It's been a real pleasure chatting to you. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Thanks to Dan again for talking to me. As I mentioned during the interview, this book is definitely geared to both an academic and popular audience. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books in Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.